Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. Everyone knows that staff that feel valued, engaged and looked after lead to better outcomes. While I won't read you a dissertation on the magical power of discretionary effort, caring for our staff will always lead to better outcomes for consumers. And during COVID, these projects rose to the occasion, supporting their staff through the increased pressure and adapted the way staff could access these services. My name's Joanna Griffiths. I'm the manager of the Queensland Occupational Violence Strategy Unit. So I come to you today from a statewide point of view. So I'm hosted at Metro North, hence the entry was put in by that health service. And one of our recent trials has been done there, which I can talk you through today. But we're basically a very small unit that looks at everything to do with occupational violence. We're funded by the Director General and we work with all health, hospital and health services. So what I'll go through with you today is big green arrow, I've been told. There we go. So that there is the actual definition that was endorsed by the Director-General and Minister back in 2016 following our task force report into occupational violence. So as you can see there, it's basically any incident when employees abused, harassed, threatened or assaulted by patients, consumers, visitors or members of the public in circumstances arising out of or in the course of their employment, irrespective of the intent of harm. So that's a really key point when we say irrespective of the intent for harm. So a lot of people don't want to report occupational violence because it's come from a patient who ordinarily probably can't help being violent, such as dementia, for example. A lot of people won't report that, which is the stigma we are trying very, very hard to change. Probably July last year, lovely Kayleen from the surgical and periop ward at the Royal Brisbane came to us to say that she's got a big problem. So her problem was that a lot of her staff were all of a sudden being subjected to a significant level of occupational violence. So I guess when a patient comes into our hospital, they are all those things you can see up there, you know, they're very anxious, they're scared, they're frightened, they don't know what to expect. All of that can lead to obviously that uncertainty and leads to people becoming violent towards our staff. Sometimes they can help it, other times they can't. So... Voila, the Ambassador Program. So what is the Ambassador Program? It is, a, it is basically a security officer. So when you're thinking of healthcare, it probably means a lot of things everywhere else, but in healthcare, it is a program that was used in Canada for... Based in Canada, it's called the Client Services Ambassador, and it was proven to reduce violence by approximately 45% in four of their emergency departments in Canada. So Lisa and I did some Googling when we first started in this role five years ago, came across this and thought, let's give that a whirl. Sounds really, sounds like it could work for us. 
When we think of violence and the reasons why people are violent towards us, so my background is customer service, I'm not a clinician. Lido was the, I'm the quasi-clinician today. So, you know, it's all about how we treat people and, you know, treat others how you want to be treated. So when we talk about ambassador, these people, these ambassadors are selected purely on their personal attributes. So we can teach anybody to be a security officer and we can teach someone to restrain and detain and all the rest of it, but it's about the personal attributes. So that's someone who wants to help others, someone who wants to care for others. And in healthcare, it's really, really obvious that we need a special sort of person to manage our patients, which I'm sure if you're working in health services, you would agree entirely. So some do it really, really well and some need a bit of help to do it a little bit better. If you think of uh, undercover sort of covert security officer, so it, depending on what health service you're from or if you are working in a health service, some of the security are quite, they've got quite a presence. They sort of look like Incredible Hulk. They've got stuff hanging off them. They look like they're all wearing bulletproof vests and others you probably can hardly tell that they're security. So there's a real mixed you know, view on what should be, a, what does a security look like in, in healthcare. So they can look like anything, really, but I guess it is their, their presence that make a huge difference. If you're calling a code and you've got, you know, four or five security turning up, staring at the patient and making them feel uncomfortable, I can pretty much guarantee that that situation is going to go south very, very quickly. So, again, it's about how we interact with our um, patients. Going back to them being scared and frightened and then all of a sudden, particularly if they've had like, some experience with the law, the worst we can do is actually present that in somebody's face with a like, mental health condition that sees security as the, as the enemy. So with these ambassadors, they're a little bit more casual, they're wearing a polo shirt, they have, some of them have ambassador on them, and they don't carry all of that standard equipment that you see in some health services. We've trialled embedded this in a number of health services across the state since 2017, I think. So we've, you know, Gympie, Nambour, uh, Logan Hospital Emergency, very, very successful at, at Logan. And we've got it at Coinda House, aged care health service there. We've also got it at the Surgical and Periop. And then we've got a commitment to expand it. So it was a government election commitment in October last year. So that's come to my team now to look to expand across the state. So, again, I've probably just rattled through all of that, but pretty much we're looking, it's based on their personal attributes, so we have a specific job description that's been gemmed and all the rest of it ready to go, and it goes, you know, it talks about that empathy, that what you want that person to display when, they, when they're dealing with your patients. They proactively engage with patients who may be aggressive. So if I look to the surgical imperial, which I'll talk about the statistics in a moment, if you can imagine there's an there's ambassador and there's about four of them that are trained ambassadors for these three wards and they very much go around that ward. They're just floating through those three wards all day. They're not 24-7, but they do work a very long shifts on a weekend. But the clinicians can then call on that ambassador if they feel that one of their patients is becoming a little bit unsettled and then, you know, they can interact very early. So the key to obviously reducing aggression is all around getting in there early and building that rapport as quick as they can. They absolutely act as a conduit between families and the, the actual patients, of course, but the families have been really key to being part of, that, part of that care. They do not routinely initiate restraint unless that threat is imminent. So it actually just breaks out in front of them, very little warning, and that can happen, obviously, but normally they will make a call to the normal security response, which will come to the wards. 
and are very much a part of the clinical team. That little picture was painted by one of the patients on the ward. Yeah, so that's, I think that's meant to be Manny, one of the ambassadors. They're all very similar in nature, these gentlemen. They kind of all look the same too. So here is just a snapshot of the actual statistics, which we find very, very encouraging. Just quickly, we looked at the need for security intervention to those wards. So that's every time security is called to try and de-escalate a patient. We looked at the amount of money we were spending on AIN specials and security specials, and that differs in each health service who you're using. This ward used a mixture of sometimes security and sometimes AIN. And we looked at the risk man incidents, and we did a staff survey pre and post of, of the trial. So it's a three-month trial that we did. As you can see up there, there was a 79% reduction in the need for security to attend those three wards during that trial. That's a significant amount of, of labour, when up, sometimes up to four people will attend one code. Normally two, but minimum two at all times, but sometimes there's three and four. So there was a reduction there by, yeah, 100, about 100 incidents in that three months. The 68% reduction reported incidents in risk man. I take that with a grain of salt, to be honest, because people don't report. So whilst there was a lot, as you can see, not a lot even for three wards in three months, three months prior there was 19 and then there was six. We need a lot of more people to report so we actually know where the problems are. So if there's one takeaway from my presentation, if you can encourage people to report, so then we can help and know where these problems are occurring. Only about 10% of people report incidents if we look at this, the source of truth of the security calls versus what's put into risk, ma'am. The next one was a 63% reduction. That's just on dollars spent in security. So again, you know, money talks, and if you can, you can, we can see these sort of statistics regularly, and if we can replicate that across the state, then the amount of money we're spending on the labour of the ambassador we're actually saving because we're not spending the money on calls for security and AIN specials and security specials. And then the staff survey was probably the most interesting for me, with one quote from one of the staff was that they've been working on that ward for 15 years and they've never felt safer coming to work. And I think that's really powerful. We've got people that work in our health services that don't feel safe coming to work every single day. And that it disturbs me, I think, is probably a good way of putting it, that, you know, there are initiatives like this that we can be doing and, you know, and that was one comment out of many that were, that were captured. We hope to see more of those. We're doing research with QUT on this, so we'll have those findings probably July this year, uh, next year. As you can see, those little words up there, they're the benefits of having an ambassador, ultimately staff safety. Feeling safe is probably the biggest one for me, apart from the fact that our patients are feeling better about everything. So we had one lovely story where a, a lady brought her husband down from another, from up north somewhere, and he was put into this ward, and she was so embarrassed by his behaviour that she never left his bedside for seven days. And the ambassador was on the ward, he went only to start of the trial, and he was waltzing around there and he got talking to her, and he then discovered she'd not left his bedside for seven days. And he was horrified and said, well, why don't I stay with him? And she was like, no, no, it's OK. I, I'm so humiliated about his behaviour. He's not normally like this. And he convinced her after having a chat to 
the husband and realise they follow the same football team. And they have built up a rapport. It was as simple as that for that situation. And it look, just enabled that lady to go home and just back to her unit because she wasn't from Brisbane and, you know, just have a shower and have a nap and come back. And she then proceeded to do that every other day that he was there for that, for that three or four-week period. So it's just those little things that make people's lives a lot more enjoyable if you can have fun in hospital. So where to from now? So it is, as, as I said, an election commitment. So we're working with health services at the moment under an expression of interest to roll it out over a two-year period. And it's limited, obviously, wards at the moment that we're looking at. And then it will be obviously up to health services to try and fund this. We have a lot of interest within Queensland Health and privately as well, where we go and chat to them about how we sort of did it and Whatnot. The ambassador can actually be applied in many, many settings. So, you know, we've got one going at our mental health ward. We have, obviously, this is surgical and periop, this particular trial. But as I said, the aged care, we saw a reduction there from about 65 incidents per month down to one. And that's purely by having an ambassador there to chat to those patients, to play cards with them, just to interact. They're quite successful in an emergency department. Very much that conduit between law enforcement coming in with somebody in handcuffs. An ambassador can go over there and have a chat to that officer to say, is there anything we need to know about this person before you take those handcuffs off? And then talk to you know the actual patient as well. But I think you can look at it, you know, it's like when you go to a really nice hotel and you you know, someone's there to greet you with a nice big smile on their face. It makes a big difference to your experience. You know, when someone's in one of our hospitals and they just feel like they're pretty helpless, I think so having someone like this, as I said, with those right attributes, who shows empathy, we're providing these officers with some training of which we want to roll out across the state. So trauma-informed care training, hearing voices. So they really do get an understanding of what it's like for a lot of these patients that are in our facilities. And yeah, hopefully we'll be able to expand it and... Uh, make a difference. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland. <laughs>